We're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 3 tonight. If you want to start turning there. had a wonderful afternoon class and uh, had a hard time getting them to stop talking. And so we did not cover a lot of material. And so we'll stop where they stopped. And so about 15 minutes from now, we'll be done. But uh, we had a, had a really, really good time. And I trust we will again this evening. Let me read for you just one verse, then we'll pray, and uh, then we'll get into tonight's lesson. I'm going to read for you chapter number 3 of Genesis, verse 17. It says, And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And let's pray. Once again, Lord, we are opening the book of Genesis, this first book of the Bible, this book of the foundations, the beginnings. And Lord, we need your help. Spirit of God, would you quicken our minds right now and uh, give to us the truth that you want us to have. I pray, Lord, that you will will uh, meet with us in a very special way, and we thank you for it, for we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Adam and Eve fell, we know that. <clears throat> they they uh, partook of what God said not to, and then God judged the serpent, and he judged the woman. And uh, can you tell me in what way was the serpent judged? What was the judgment upon the serpent? He had to crawl in the dust, didn't he? Now, there's a second part of that, judgment against him. What was that? Eating dust, right. But now, let's leave the dust for a moment and go to... Stolen the cattle. Yes. Who said that? Yes. What about it? Yeah, he put enmity between the woman and the serpent. So what is enmity? It's a fancy word. Hatred, yeah, animos, and there's, there's this, this animosity between the two. And God put that, that was the judgment upon the serpent. Then he judged the woman. What was the judgment against the woman? Yeah, it's trouble in childbearing, right? There's going to be pain, the Bible says sorrow in childbearing. What was the second part of her judgment? What's that? Yeah, she was placed under the rule of the man. It was the second part of it. And, uh, and now tonight we're going to talk about God judging the man. Well, if, you've got, if you're taking notes, letter C is God judged the man. God judged the man. There's an interesting little phrase that for some reason just keeps ringing in my head in verse number 17. He hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. He listened to his wife. Man, that got him in trouble. He listened to his wife. I'm thinking, was that a smart thing, Adam, to listen to your wife? Now, um, let me just tell you, quite frankly, man's biggest problem today is not listening to their wife. Seriously, men get in so much trouble because they fail to listen to the wisdom of their wives. And that is just across the board, just mankind in general. Men do not listen well to their wives. But here in the garden, this, that which led to Adam's fall was listening to 
his, his, his wife's voice, listening to her. So we're going to talk about that just a little bit. Number one is man's misplaced submission is the word. Man's misplaced submission. Adam elevated Eve's desire over God's. God said, don't. She said, I want it. He went with her instead of God. He, in turn, placed himself, quite frankly, literally under her rule, not God's. He took himself out from underneath God's rule, and he did what she said instead. So in that moment, he had a misplaced submission. Number two, man's misery was introduced. Misery. Uh, by the way, before we get too far into it, was work part of the curse? How many think work was part of the curse? Just curious. Work was part of the curse. Put your hand up. Yes, I think work was part of the curse. How many think it was not part of the curse? Okay. The knots won. <laughs> the knots won. There are more of you, and uh, God, hold on. Let me tell you something, and then you get the news. God told Adam to work long before the curse. So the work was not part of the curse. Now, now what we're going to get into in his curse made work miserable. But the work was not the curse. Okay, were you going to say something? Right, 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 exactly right. I've never heard that at all. Yeah. I. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, it's gonna be wonderful. Right. 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 Exactly right. In verse number eighteen and nineteen, it says, "Thorns also and thistles." shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Don't you hate thorns and thistles? Man, alive, they, they, everywhere. Why is it you can meticulously work your garden and plant these seeds that you want so well, and you, you have a hard time getting them to come up, but the weeds come up, automatically. It's incredible. That was part of the curse. So was the sweat of thy face, working sweat. Now, I found this interesting because um, up until now, I believe that God watered the earth in what manner? It wasn't rain yet. What was it? What was it? Yeah, it was mist. Mist or dew. So there was mist coming up the watered water the ground. This was pre-rain days. Sounds to me like that would be more of a tropical type environment. Have you been to the tropics? Well, you just step outside and immediately you're sweating. So why is it that now, even though the environment has not changed, why is it now he's sweating and he wasn't before? Now I know I, this may be nothing more than just saying that he's going to have to work harder now than before. I don't know the answer to that. Um, 
Uh, letter A, thorns and thistles in the ground. Thorns and thistles. Letter B, hard toil throughout life. Now use the word sorrow again. In sorrow. This is the same sorrow, the very same word used in childbirth. Gave him sorrow. Do you remember what we talked about in this word sorrow? This is not just, you know, weeping your eyes and crying sorrow. What's, what is it? Physical pain. Right, there's pain involved in this particular word. So when it says sorrow, it doesn't just mean I'm going to be weeping. It means there's going to be physical hurt going on as I'm working. The actual definition from the dictionary is labor, pain, and worrisomeness. All part of this word, sorrow. And then letter C, sin would return man to his original state, which was what? What is it? Dust or dirt. Dirt. Yeah. I, I put dirt here. You put dust behind the ones right. Letter D. Have you thought about the angels? What about God's judgment upon the angels? Now, what we're going to do is I'm going to read for you a paragraph from a commentator. Now, if I went around right now and asked each of you to comment, there would have however many people here tonight have that many different opinions on uh, God's judgment or lack thereof of on the angels. And so we don't know. The Bible does not clarify this. But this particular guy makes a very interesting observation. Uh, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one, one of my favorite authors, says, Why did God not provide a means for angels to be forgiven and saved? Why couldn't angels be saved? They sinned. Why couldn't they be saved? This is an unanswered mystery, he writes, but one of his excerpts offers a possibility. Here he says, Nowhere in the Bible do we read the fallen angels will be redeemed. Salvation is only for man. Why? Or why? <laughs> the angels fell as man fell. So why shouldn't there be salvation for angels as well as for man? Well, in the case of men, the temptation and the fall came from the outside. When Satan fell, he fell because of something within. The temptation did not come to Satan from, without, from outside himself. It was something that happened within. But what it was, we don't know. And it's possible, I wonder, that God in his infinite grace and kindness has drawn that distinction because man was subjected to this subtlety this beguiling, this maligning influence, this angelic power of the fallen angel, God has had mercy and compassion and pity upon men and has provided for him a way of salvation. He's not done so in the case of the angels. I don't know. But I'm interested, curious. Any observations or ideas? Steve? Yes, and maybe that's the answer. That was suggested this afternoon, and that's a really good insight. Maybe. Angels, it doesn't say they were created in God's image, but maybe. Scott, what were you going to say? Hearts back to God. So 
There's a lot we don't know. Yeah, a lot we don't know, isn't there? Yeah. That's interesting. It says made in the image of God. That's interesting. Another insight that was mentioned this afternoon is angels, as far as you know, have no blood. Interesting also. No soul. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. We don't know conclusively why. Trusting God with this, but I just wanted to just get you thinking. Let's go on. And thank you for the insights. God's provision, number eight, God's provision and further protection for man. Now we know that because of the sin, God made it impossible for man to get back into the garden. He put a guard there so man could not get back in the garden. Now what so often is the case is when when, when something happens and a judgment comes from God, we look at it like God's discipline, God's getting back on us, God's being vengeful toward us. But in reality, oftentimes, what God is doing, just like a wise, loving parent has to discipline their child, they do so for their protection. They're protecting them, even though there's pain involved, they're protecting them from later on getting, getting worse or falling more into sin. And so uh, what I, that's what I see here God is doing, is protecting them. Letter A, Adam, Adam named his wife. He named her, which I find interesting. Yeah, verse 20, And Adam called his, name, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Adam named her. Now, it probably shouldn't surprise us, because what had Adam named long before her? All the animals, yeah. See, he, he must have a spiritual gift of naming. Because God said, Adam, I want you to do this. Now, there was nobody else to do it, so God said, I want you to do this. He named all the animals. He had gotten pretty good at naming things. So Adam named his wife as well. Do you know what her name meant? Real close. And yes, that's exactly what it means. The one that I found was life giver. Same thing. Yeah, same thing. By faith... Adam called out her name, apparently for all to hear, the life giver of all mankind. By faith, because she hadn't given life yet. She hadn't had children yet. She hadn't been the mother of all mankind yet. She did it by, he did it by faith. I'm naming you life giver before she had, any, had given any life. Acts 17, 26, and hath made of one blood all nations of men. For to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. One blood flows through all of us. Letter B. 
God sacrificed animals because of man's sin. Verse 21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Here's recorded the first death, the first death in creation. God killing innocent animals to make a covering for man's sin. A blood sacrifice had to be offered in the Old Testament to atone for or cover man's sins. Let's remember, in the New Testament, Jesus did not atone for sin. He didn't cover sin. He did away with sin. He did away with our sins with his death on the cross. I was just thinking, I just for some reason, might have been because of the study, but I was thinking of, of uh, the times that I would spend um, butchering rabbits. So we'd go out hunting, we'd shoot rabbits, and bring them back, and then we would butcher them. And I had numbers of times where I wanted, as a young, young boy, teenager, wanted to keep the hide. And so I would be careful how I took the hide off and, and the, the fur, and it was just fun for a guy to take that and then to, to stretch that out and to, to, to try to tan that a little bit and work with that. But what I remember is you've shot the animal, and if you bring it home fast enough, it's still warm inside. So when you, when you, you know, cut the skin and you're, you're working with the entrails, it's still warm. So life has just recently left that animal. Now, I did that all the time. I, I, I killed lots of animals as a kid. But here, a number of years ago, I, yeah, well, it would have been a little over five years ago, I shot my first deer. I'd never gone big game hunting before, first deer. And before that time, it had been many years since I killed an animal. It kind of bothered me a little bit. It never used to bother me. I'd put anything in front of me, I'd shoot it, no problem. But after all those years, it kind of bothered me. I wonder how mankind felt with the first death. And I wonder if God enabled them to see him butcher the animal to take the hide. Now, I don't know. But there's just something, there's something a little repulsive about death. And so God is the first one, was created, did the first, uh, brought the first death because of man's sins. Uh, number one, a blood sacrifice was required, Hebrews 9.22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Number two, sin was covered in the Old Testament by blood. We've talked about this. In Levit Leviticus 1.4, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement, which means covering. For him. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me, same word, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. So sin was covered in the Old Testament. So what it, what it means is in the Old Testament, when somebody sinned, they went to the priest, they sliced the throat of the animal, and that blood covering covered that sin. Didn't do away with it. So now that sin is covered in blood. 
Now, obviously, we're humans. We can't see that sin, but technically that sin would be in that blood. If there was some kind of a spiritual mechanism that we could use to dig in through that blood and find that sin, it would still be there. In the New Testament, Jesus hanging on the cross shed his perfect blood. And it did away with all that sin. You can dig all day long in that blood with that fancy tool, and you'll never find it because the sin is gone. It's gone. In the Old Testament, it was a picture of what was going to happen with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's number three, sin was taken away at the cross. It wasn't covered, it was taken away. 1 John 3, 5, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Letter C, sin allowed man to know good and evil. It allowed man to know good and evil. Verse 22, and the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. God, God was having a conversation here. Lest man become like us. Who was part of this conversation? Yeah, yeah, God and God and God. <laughs> He was talking to God, all three aspects of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He was talking to himself, but himself is a three-part being. Um, number one, it was a knowledge by experience. It was a knowledge by experience. Partaking in sin gave man experience, thereby first-hand knowledge of sin. He could no longer remain in innocent bliss as he had willingly chosen to go against God. Never would he ever be the same. But number two, it's also knowledge by guilt. Man had gained knowledge of sin from the perspective of guilt. And here's the difference. Because God said man has become like one of us to know good and evil. You? Yes. So, so if, he's, if we're like God, in what way are we like God? I'm not completely like God. It's in what way? Well, here's one distinction. When man sinned, he had the knowledge of sin by experience and by guilt. He felt the effects of that sin in guilt. Did God ever have guilt? No. God never knew sin by guilt. God knew sin through the eyes of holiness. Man's perspective of sin was through guilt. God's perspective of sin was through the eyes of holiness. John 8, verse 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even at the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Oh, that conscience. Just, oh, that guilt from the conscience. That's how man knows sin, through guilt. Letter D. God prevented man from taking of the tree of life. And before we read the verse, how? How did man or God prevent man from taking the tree of life. What did he do? 
right? He did. He cast them out. And then he put guards there to make sure that man can't get in. But isn't it interesting? He put them at the entrance. I've always said, well, why doesn't man just sneak around back? Come in the back way? But there must only be one way into the garden. How? I, I don't know. But God is certainly smart enough to know that if there were another way, he would protect that, with it, that way as well. Verse 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence it was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So number one, man was kept from living forever. He was kept from living forever. For eating of the tree of life would have given Adam and Eve the ability to live forever. Such an experience would have caused Adam and Eve to live forever in their fallen state. They would have never had the privilege of resurrected bodies. God drove out man. It's very, very clear. It says he drove him out. Why do you think God had to drive him out and not just say, Adam, okay, you've got to get out? Why did he drive him out? This is all conjecture. I know that, but why do you think? What would cause man to have to be driven out? Sin's consequences. Who said that? Yeah. Sin's consequences. I don't think he wanted to go. I think he was so pleased with the garden and with the relationship he'd had previously with God, he didn't want to go. Man had to drive him out. Maybe, I don't know. I do know that sin has a way of perverting everything. And so already, Adam's stubborn side is being shown. Yes. Exactly. I've heard the same thing. Yep. Randy? Yeah. <coughs> yeah. They sure did. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Abby? Exactly right. Uh, number two, God displayed his wrath towards sin. Wrath towards sin. God guarded the garden with armed cherubims. Wielding flaming swords, these unidentified creatures were selected to guard the entrance to the garden. Other places, they're described as having four faces, representing different strengths of God. They became a symbol of God's presence, which had met with man from the beginning, now preventing such intimacy. So number three, God became unapproachable to man. Unapproachable. And that which made man unapproachable to God was sin. So now there's a separation. Perfect, holy, righteous God 
and sinful man. In sin, I cannot approach God. It's impossible. No longer could man interact with his God as he had so freely in the garden. It's interesting. This passage, and he placed at the east of the Garden of East of Eden cherubims. That phrase can be translated this way. Instead of, and he placed at the garden, it could be translated, and he dwelt between the cherubims at the east of the Garden of Eden. What that means, if that's true, is that you have these cherubims, let's say there's two of them, cherubims, you've got the flaming sword, and between the cherubims is God Almighty himself. That's what's being suggested by this. And I want to follow it up with another thought here, but just in your mind, see this. You've got two cherubims, these angelic creatures. You've got this flaming sword that's going all different directions, and you've got God Almighty there between the cherubims. Right? Apart from the flaming sword, does that picture in your mind sound familiar? To what? Yeah, exactly right. God dwelling between the two cherubims above the mercy seat. Exactly right. What were you going to say? It sure is. It sounds like a 24-7 job. That is what they do, protecting God's holiness. It sure does. What a job. Um, this initiated a new mode of worshiping God in order to remind man of God's anger towards sin. So now, daily, man walked with God. Man worshipped God freely. Man had access to God in the garden until sin. Now there's a problem. Now there's a separation. So now how is man going to worship God? He's going to do so through fear, first of all. And he's going to do so through a, through a way where he cannot approach God. So it's changed his method of worship. Uh, in Exodus, uh, let's see, he would later dwell in the temple between the cherubims above the mercy seat. Exodus 25, 22. And, <clears throat> and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So this is the picture we're seeing here, which may be what was at the entrance of the garden to protect man from going in and eating of the tree of life. Number four. Man would need a mediator to taste of life once again. A mediator. Man was kept from the tree of life by God's wrath for sin. It was also a picture of the mediation of a promised Savior who would come as the way of life or to life once again. Picture that sword. It's flaming. Does that flaming sword make you want to run up and cuddle it? No, I mean, that's, that's anger, that's, that's, that's threatening, that's, that's, that's fearsome there. And that's God's wrath against sin being pictured. 
Jesus would eventually come to appease God's wrath by his death. Man would be able to taste once again of the tree of life through the access provided by the Son of God. The sixth chapter of John, verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Next is man's first children. Man's first children. What were the names of man's first children? <laughs> Thank you. Cain and Abel. I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> Do we know that? <laughs> Cain and Abel. Right, the first children. It's interesting that Cain and Abel were not created. Adam was created. Eve was taken out of the rib of man. The children were not created. They were reproduced by God's creation, which is interesting. So here is the first time of man fulfilling the command to be fruitful. Be fruitful. Letter A, Cain and Abel were born. Genesis 4, 1 and 2. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. It just sounds funny for her to say, I have given birth to a man. Well, the word means male. So she had a male son, is what it literally means. Number one, they were very different siblings. Cain and Abel were very different. We had a long discussion this afternoon, but isn't it interesting how of the same family, kids can be so incredibly different? Lori, you think so? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the same family. So different. We've got three daughters. They're night and day different. Now, yes, there's a lot of similarities. We know you could, you could figure it out. They're sisters. But are they different? Cain and Abel, very different. Letter A, very different trajectories. They were going to go different paths. And number one, the meaning of their names. The meaning of their names. Now, I'm giving this to you with this disclaimer. Depending on which commentary you read, on which uh, Bible uh, dictionary you study, will determine what name they're given. I found lots and lots of possibilities for this. So I'm going to give you the one that I like the most, and the one that seemed to be said the most. The meaning of their names, letter A, Cain's name, meant possession or acquisition. Possession or acquisition. I'm getting something. I'm possessing this. I'm acquiring something. Eve excitedly named her son Possession, believing I have gotten, there it is, I have received, I have gotten a man from the Lord. This is interesting because she may have wrongly interpreted Genesis 3.15. She may have believed that her firstborn was the coming Redeemer. She may have believed that he was the one that was going to bruise Satan's head. She may have believed that, which is why she may have named him accordingly. The words could be read, according to a commentary, could be read, I have gotten a man, the Lord, God-man. Now, I looked at the Hebrew, not, not carefully, but I looked at it. You really got to twist it. 
but if you twist it just right and squint, you can, you can see that there. Letter B is Abel's name meant vanity. So she, she had possession and, and vanity. And by the way, somebody asked, were they twins? And I had never thought about it before, but several commentaries think they might have been. Um, others not, so we don't know. But it's a possibility. Vanity, perhaps because of the pain she experienced. Let's remember, this is now after the curse. So part of the curse was sorrow or great pain in childbirth. She's gone through great pain now twice. And so possibly due to the great pain, she named the product of that second great pain vanity. It's possible. Or, yeah, yeah, possibly, yeah, sure. Yeah, I do too, but I know what you're talking about. Or because of her elevated expectation for her firstborn, meaning her firstborn is the Redeemer. So anything after the Redeemer is vanity. Psalm 39.5 says, Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity, says the psalmist. Number two, they're different vocations. They're different vocations. The first boys were taught to work. Apparently, Adam taught his boys to work. I think they were hard workers, because I don't think it was part of the curse. I think it was how God initially told Adam, you need to work. He worked. Once the curse happened, now it's laborious. There's pain involved. Both boys grew old enough to take on the respective vocations. Abel became a shepherd sheep. Cain became a farmer, growing things in the ground. One commentator writes, in Abel can be seen a type of Christ as shepherd as well as in the sacrifice and martyrdom. There's a picture of Christ. Letter B, also very different offerings. They brought very different offerings. Number one, the boys present their offerings. Verse 3 and 4. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Now isn't it interesting that God does not spend in the Bible a whole lot of time explaining his actions. Now, we can make suppositions, which we're going to do. He doesn't say a whole lot as to why he accepted one and not the other. So before I get into this, I'm curious. What do you think is the reason that he accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's? Paul? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. It's beautiful. Now, Cain didn't understand that he was a 
And that's very interesting because what I think you're suggesting is that Abel brought his sacrifice according to God's overall plan. Cain did not. Other suppositions? Yes. Yes. Right. Now, there's something in the scripture that tells us that, we, that we're pretty sure that Abel brought the best he had. And how do we know that? Well, yes. I'm thinking in this passage. What's it called that he brought? He brought the first fruits, or the first whatever it was. Firstling? Yes. He, so, so that which is best, he brought. But what's it say about Cain? He just brought the fruit of the ground. It doesn't clarify it. So I, I know what you said, and I've always thought that, that he brought the best he had. I'm not sure that's true. Exactly right. It wouldn't have mattered, but what's worse is I'm not sure he brought the best he had. No, no, but it is evidence of his character. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. And I'm saying all that for where I'm going here. <laughs> See? Yes. Bruise the serpent's head. Right. Right. Yeah, he rejected a lot. We're going to learn. But something else that's interesting, Scott? Precisely, precisely. One more little thing I want you to think about. As a result of the curse, what happened to the ground? Yeah, so the ground became cursed. What was the offering that Cain brought? Fruit of the ground. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, uh, very, uh, number one, the boys present their offering. Letter A, presented before the Lord at Eden. Both boys brought their respective offerings to the Lord. Where was the Lord? Well, if the Lord is where I suggested, he's at the entrance of the garden, protecting it. 
So they brought their offerings to the Lord. It's possible they went back to the entrance of the garden where God had appeared between the cherubims. Letter B, I said Cain's leftovers. And that's why I made an issue of that bread, just to, so I can fill the blank. <laughs> some believe Cain brought some leftover produce. This was not original with me. Some of the commentaries mentioned this. Or insignificant things like flax and hemp seed. His character is soon revealed, which adds to the likelihood of his offering being less than his best. Numbers 18.12, all the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the wheat, the first fruits of them which they shall offer unto the Lord, them have I given thee. In other words, God wants the best we have, not our leftovers. Number two, God's response to their offerings. God's response, letter A, God accepted Abel's offering, Hebrews 11:4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Here we have righteous Abel. Abel, though he did not live a long life, he went to heaven righteous. <coughs> God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Abel obeyed God's directive by faith offering a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Letter B, Cain's offering was rejected by God. Verse 5, but unto Cain, to his offering, he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Imagine the picture. I believe that Cain and Abel were in front of God. Now, they could not approach God like they used to. They were in front of God bringing their offerings. They could see or understand that God was there. So they're in front of him. Cain got angry at God. His countenance fell in front of God. He's standing there in front of God, and he's pouting. And God's right there. He's demonstrating his emotions in front of God. Angry at God like that, right in front of him. Now, sometimes you may get angry at God, but... Would you get angry if he were right there? I know he is. <laughs> I know he is. And if we could only think that, you're exactly right. But he could see the fact that he was there. Um, one commentator writes, Cain's offering in worship was that of the natural, self-righteous man who needs no blood but trusts in his character and good works. Cain did not believe in what Jehovah Elohim had declared concerning sin, the penalty of sin, and he did not believe in the prediction of Genesis 3.15. God had cursed the ground, but Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. Today, the masses of professing Christians go in the way of Cain. Jude 1, 10, 11. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Letter C, God questioned Cain's anger. Verse 6, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? Number one, Cain's obvious temper. Cain's obvious temper. His anger flared before God. The word wrath here means to blaze up in anger or jealousy. He apparently didn't even try to hide his feelings 
as he must have stood there pouting before Almighty God. Exodus 22:24 uses the same word here, and my wrath shall wax hot. It's from the same word. Number two, God's obvious mercy. God's obvious mercy. It was of God's mercy that he spoke to Cain at all. God's intent was to provide a remedy as suggested in the following verse. God's amazing. Man pushes and pushes and pushes, and when you think there's no way that God is going to give him another chance, God mercifully gives another chance. Letter D, God provided a substitute offering for Cain. He provided a substitute offering. Verse 7, If thou doest well, Cain, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Number one, God offered Cain another chance. Have you ever been offered another chance by God? I have. Numberless times. God told Cain that if he had done well, or according to God's directive, he would have been accepted. In his mercy, however, it was not too late. He could still be accepted if he would offer according to God's will. It's not too late, Cain. And he's telling this to the man who is pouting in front of him. He's telling this to the man who's angry at him. You talk about mercy. Acts 10.35, But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Number two, God provided a sin offering for Cain. God was so desirous for Cain to do right, he even made provision for this substitute offering. The word used for offering in this passage is often translated sin offering. A sin offering. God had apparently provided a lamb waiting for Cain. If he chose to take and kill it, as God had made it subject to Cain's rule. In other words, it sounds like God had real close captured a lamb and placed it there for Cain to use as a sacrifice and made that lamb so it would not run away. It's under Cain's rule. All he has to do is pick it up and slice his throat. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And number three, God's gracious offer was rejected. Cain, however, decided to refuse God's provision. Just as so many reject God's gracious provision for sin in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You talked almost as much this afternoon. That's really good. Good job. This amazing, though, this study, it's just amazing to see over and over again, God revealing to us here in the very beginning of the Bible His mercy to fallen man. It's amazing. A lot of amazing things about it. Amazing that Eve had never heard a lie before. Never heard one before. And yet she's held accountable for that. Um, everything that happened is a first time. 
There had never been a murder before, but how many generations did it take before the first murder? The first kids. My wife mentioned that this afternoon. She's thinking, as any normal person would think, okay, the first generation is going to stumble up bad, and they may tell a lie. The second generation may get even worse, and they may steal something. And, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 generations down the line, it may get so bad that somebody may have a murder there. That's not how it happened. Because that's not how sin works. Because sin kills the spirit. And so you don't have that, 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 that regression, the regressive. My father-in-law died um, Alzheimer's. And uh, as he was getting older, the doctors told us that his brain now is such that the repressive part of his brain is shrinking, which is why he would say the most bizarre things. He would have never said those things early on. But now he's saying the or doing the craziest things because his brain is shooting these thoughts. And his brain is saying, say this. Well, before, the repressive side would say, no, you can't say that. And he would... I'm not going to say it. But when the repression is gone, there's no filter. Everything gets said. Things are, that's what sin does. Sin stops the repressive side. And it blinds us. And so in that first generation, there was the wicked sin of murder. That's just incredible to me. I made the comments after they had no marriage counselor. No. 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 Yeah. Remember Hillary Clinton saying it takes a village? Remember? I criticized that and I said that's 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 crazy. Until my grandson showed up and realized because my wife and I watched him, it takes a village to take care of these kids. My land are exhausting. Wow. What a way to conclude. We're gonna pray. We need to. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love and blessing and for the sweet time we've had this evening studying your word. Holy Spirit, continue to direct us and give us truth. And I pray, Lord, that we might live our lives based on that truth. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.